Well, good morning, church family. And if this is your first Sunday here at Windsor Road, uh, delighted to worship with you. My name's Randy. We're on the New Testament book of Acts. And we're going to talk about um, when community and when unity are tested by conflict. So we're going to talk about conflict today. How many of you all had a conflict in the last week? Raise your hands. Okay. Yeah. How many of you have had a conflict like before you got to church today? Don't raise your hands. So, um, so this is relevant to all of us. So we're going to be in learning mode. I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn to the New Testament book of Acts. Acts chapter 15. And we're going to just kind of parachute right into the middle of a conflict. So what you're going to read is while an event is going on, and you'll kind of get the flavor of what the conflict's about and what the solution was. Uh, but I want us to read together Acts 15, verses 22 to 35. You'll find that on page 924 of your church Bibles. Acts 15, 22 to 35 says, Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them, to send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, that's an area north of Jerusalem, since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the Word of God with many others also. This is God's Word. So regarding conflict, when what went through your mind the last time someone said to you, we need to talk? Did you think to yourself, A, oh, that person wants to tell me how much he appreciates me. Or B, what did I do now? I'm in trouble. Okay, let's just commence to the sentencing. Huh? The thought of having a talk often causes anxiety, even more anxiety than the actual talk itself. 
we get anxious about how that talk's going to go, and um, our worry can lead us to one of three ways that people respond to conflict. Peace breaking, peace faking, peace making. Peace breaking, that's when we choose to fight. And peace breaking is typically you-centered. Now, I blame you, I accuse you, I may even bully you. Peace breaking is, well, can involve name calling, intimidation, sarcasm, even physical harm. Peace breaking. Then there's peace faking. And that's where we choose flight, not fight, but flight. And that's typically me centered. Uh, now, flight's appropriate when safety is threatened or if I feel so flooded with emotion that I just can't talk about it. I get that. But flight as a pattern can be a form of denial, pretending a problem is not there that really needs to be dealt with. And, and so flight can, can end a friendship or it can cause you to jump from job to job to job. It can even cause you to hop from church to church to church. Peace faking. Peace breaking, peace faking. What we're going to consider today is peace making. Peace making. Here's the definition. Peace making is acting in love as relationship reconcilers as far as it depends on us. Acting in love Relationship reconcilers, as far as it depends on us, peacemaking. Peacemaking is not just peacemaking is not just a tool of people management. Peacemaking is not just a ministry tool, or it's not just for special crisis situations. Peacemaking is part of our identity in Christ. I am a peacemaker. I don't just do peacemaking. I am a peacemaker. Christ redeemed us to be reconcilers. So peacemaking is a way of life where I bring peace, the presence of peace, into whatever room I enter. Uh, Matthew 5, 9 says, Jesus, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called sons and daughters of God. So peacemaking is evidence of our adoption in Christ. And James chapter 3 verse 18 says, Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. Now just think about the imagery there. Can the farmer make the crops grow up out of the ground? No. But the farmer can cultivate the ground, prepare the ground, plant the seed, and then leave the results to God. And that's this ministry of peacemaking by peacemakers. That's the part of the definition where we see that it depends, as far as it depends on us. Peacemaking, a way of life. Now, our scripture today in Acts chapter 15 is a case study in peacemaking. And Acts 15 has been called the most important chapter of the book of Acts. We've now spent three Sundays on Acts 15. And the reason why it's so important is because it tells us 
about our vertical relationship with God and then how that informs our horizontal relationship with one another. Vertically speaking, we learn that grace is our only ground before God. Grace is unreserved mercy shown to an undeserving person by an unobligated giver. Grace. Grace teaches us that God does not hold tryouts for his team. God's grace. God's grace then transforms our horizontal relationships, how we treat one another. Because of grace, we welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us. Because of grace, we outdo one another in showing honor. Outdo one another in showing honor. And because of grace, we belong, now get along. Because of grace, we belong, now get along. Now, Acts 15 tells the story of when peaceful community was tested by conflict. And it is the peacemaking story of celebration, threat, peace, and advance. Let me just summarize Acts 15 in one sentence. Here it is. When the celebration of the Gentiles into God's multi-ethnic family was threatened, the church initiated peacemaking and the gospel advanced. So there's celebration, there's threat, there's peace, and there's advance. That's the storyline of Acts 15. Now within this storyline are some practical principles that I would like for us to consider for our relationships here today. Now the celebration in Acts 15 happened as Paul and Barnabas came back from their first missionary preaching tour and they planted churches and people were converted. Christianity, which was originally Hebrew-centric, began to take on Gentiles. And who are Gentiles? Gentiles are any ethnicities who aren't Jewish. So in the Jewish mindset, there are only two ethnicities. There's the Hebrews and the non-Hebrews. And as, as the gospel was growing, God opened the doors of faith to non-Hebrews. And so Christ's church was becoming multi-ethnic. And that was celebrated, not tolerated. That was applauded, not dreaded. This celebration turned into threat when legalists from Jerusalem came to Antioch, which was a city about 300 miles north of Jerusalem. These Judaizers, these legalists, insisted that non-Jews become Jews in order to be full-fledged Christians. In other words, Jesus plus Jesus plus circumcision. Jesus must be supplemented by conversion to Judaism before conversion to Christianity. Well, of course, this, this was conflict. No small dissension. And that takes me to principle number one. And here it is. Take initiative to identify the issue. Take initiative to identify the issue. Sometimes we're in conflict. And we think that it's about X and the other person says, no, it's about Y. And we're just kind of talking past each other. And it's clear what the conflict was about here in this verse, verse 1. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. 
So, you know, Paul's going, now, let me make sure I understand exactly what you said. Let's define the issue. Did you just say that the issue is that people can't be saved without circumcision? That Jesus must be supplemented by law keeping? Yes, that's exactly what we're saying. Oh, okay. No! We disagree. We believe that by grace through faith in Christ, Gentiles and Jews are full and equal members of God's multi-ethnic family. And since you claim to represent Jerusalem, we need to go to Jerusalem and have a talk. We're going to have a talk and settle this with the apostles and the elders and the church. And so that's what happened. Verses 3 and 4 tell us that they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria on their way, and they were telling the story of how God redeemed and rescued the Gentiles on their preaching journey. And they huffed it 300 miles. That had to have taken two weeks. Think about it. Paul and Barnabas had to stop what they're doing and hike the distance from Chicago to St. Louis and resolve this issue. And I guess I'd like to make an observation for us when we think about our issue. And it's in this question. Is this issue worth a 300-mile walk? <laughs> In other words, is this really worth fighting over? You know, really, is it? Some conflict, some conflict does not need to be resolved, or rather, it, just need, it can be resolved by being overlooked. Overlooked, that's the biblical word, Proverbs 19.11. Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. Now, overlooking is not peace-faking. Uh, overlooking an offense is not passive. It's active. It's fueled by God's grace through the gospel. Overlooking is deliberately choosing to forego, not talk about, not dwell on, nor let a root of bitterness grow toward an offense. Overlooking is not about letting something go and then letting the other person know how magnanimous you are for overlooking their violation in your kingdom. And you may ask, well, well, then how do I know whether or not I should overlook an offense? Great question. Let's consider these questions, such as, is this offense damaging to the reputation of God? Hmm? She's not driving to the store the way I drive to the store. I must speak with this woman. Really? Really? I, I mean, but I'm annoyed. Well, I, evidently you are, you know. But is God's reputation being damaged by a different route, taking the same distance? Is it, is, is it damaging to your relationship? I mean, is, is there a cancer on your relationship because of this? 
Is there a cancer on the relationship to others? Are others being damaged by this? And what about the offender? Is the offender being damaged? Well, no. Well, maybe you should let it go. Just overlook it, okay? But if so, if, if there is a cancer, then you need to plan a peacemaking session. And that means you need to set up a time and a place to talk. You, you need to set up a time and a place. Where's your Jerusalem? Where's the place you're willing to take your 300-mile walk? Because this is important. And define the issue and get it on the schedule and take initiative. And here's why. To the, to the degree that you continue to let someone do that which you resent, you become part of the problem. To the degree you continue to let someone do that which you resent, you become part of the problem. Do you know, nestled in these ceremonial laws in the book of Leviticus is a choice piece of wisdom for relationships. And it's Leviticus 19.17. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. So take initiative to define the issue. That's principle one. Principle number two is this. Acknowledge God's initiative over the issue. Acknowledge God's initiative over the issue. So acknowledging God's initiative assumes that God is still at work in positive ways during the conflict. Conflict doesn't put a halt to God's redemptive activity. God's at work. That's what we see in Acts chapter 15. Look at how God is the, the subject of these verbs. Verse 7, God made a choice. Verse 8, God witnessed. God gave the Holy Spirit. Verse 9, God made no distinction. God cleansed their hearts. Verse 14, God showed his speaker. In verses 16 and 17, in this prophecy from Amos, uh, God is the speaker. I will return. I will rebuild. I will restore. Often we see, all this is going on in the middle of the conflict. And often we see conflict as an intrusion, an intruder interrupting our plans and so we then assume that because it's an interruption to our work, it's an interruption to God's work. And so we want to fix this in order for God's work to go on as if God can't be at work in conflict. And I want you to hear how Peter acknowledges God's initiative in verse 11. In verse 11, Peter does not say, they will be saved by grace like we are. He doesn't say that, does he? He reverses it, right? He says, we will be saved by grace just as they are. So God's been at work in their lives apart from us. Uh, their salvation is legitimate. In, in conflict, you know, we, we want it to be about us. And so we, we think that God can't work in the middle of struggle and strife. And so then what happens is we start seeking resolution NBA style. Right? We blow the whistle, stop the game, call the foul, identify the offender, assess the penalty, and then play ball. It's often how we do it. 
Can you imagine the next time Stephen Curry commits a foul, the ref blows the whistle, and then, and then Curry just stands there, and, and he just starts sobbing uncontrollably. He just gets all emotional, and, and he's like, well, what's, what's the matter, Stephen? Why does he have to blow the whistle? And, he, and he's pointing at me. And I, I feel uncomfortable. It hurts my feelings. Stephen, Stephen, this is the NBA. You're a professional. This is how basketball works. Deal with it. Deal with it. Church family, this is not the NBA. Your marriage, not the NBA. Close relationships, not the NBA. Put away your whistle. Stop pointing. Okay? The most important question in conflict is not who's to blame. The most important question in conflict is how can the king be glorified? Because in conflict, if I do not commit to glorifying the king, I will by default commit to glorifying someone else, namely me. So in conflict, I reveal that I have either a big God or a big ego. Which is it? Hmm. Principle number three. Principle number three is this. Value the stories of others. Value the stories of others. Now, you know, we've heard in conflict the saying, there are two sides to every story. And Proverbs 18, 17 would agree. Proverbs 18, 17, the one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. There are two sides to every story. But all too often, we don't buy that. You know, what we buy is that I'm right and you're wrong. And that, that's my working assumption. You're wrong. You're selfish. You're naive. You're manipulative. You're irrational. You're to blame. It's your fault. You're wrong. You're wrong. And Acts 15 teaches us to value the stories of others. And in these verses, the relevant parties speak and their stories are valued. And that's why, um, that's why in the text we see in Acts 14, 27, Paul and Barnabas rehearse what God has done. In Acts 15, 3, when Paul and Barnabas met with the believers on the way to Jerusalem and Phoenicia and Samaria, uh, they describe the story of the conversion of the Gentiles. And, and then in Jerusalem, in verse 12, they rehearsed the story again. And then, and then uh, Peter stood and told his story, affirming Paul and Barnabas. So by valuing the stories of others, we move from close-minded certainty to open-minded curiosity. Because if I think that you're the problem... I'm going to get locked out of your story. And stubborn certainty keeps me out. 
But curiosity lets me in as I ask questions like, help me understand how you came to the conclusion that you've come to. Tell me more. What information do you have that allows you to think the way you do in this manner? Tell me more. Look at verse 12, the words silent and listened. So there was an effort to value their stories. And later on, James would write his own letter, James 1.19. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Now, let me just get really practical in this way. Uh, part of the wisdom of resolving conflict is the wisdom of resolving when not to resolve conflict. And here are four times when it's just not wise to resolve conflict. Here it is. 15 minutes before bedtime. 15 minutes after waking up. 15 minutes before going to work. And 15 minutes after getting home from work. All right? I would recommend that you double that. 30 minutes in each of those slots. I would. Um, resolve not to resolve conflict, you know, when you're tired, when you're fatigued, when you're hungry or hangry, you know. You won't value the stories of others when you're not ready to engage. That's principle number three. Principle number four is seek wisdom in the Scriptures. So James cites the prophet Amos here in affirming that the Gentiles are full members of God's family. And, and, and th their conversions are evidence of God's fulfillment of His promises. And do you hear how He sought Scriptures for insight? Now, what would that look like in our case? Well, let's consider what Jesus said about peacemaking and who's responsible. In Matthew 5, 23... Jesus said, if you are offering your gift at the altar and remember your brother has something against you, go and be reconciled, then come and offer your gift. So the offering can wait. Bet you never thought you'd hear a preacher say that. <laughs> wait. It's better to go resolve that relationship and then come and offer your gift. So if... if if your brother has something against you and you know, you're the offender, settle that. And consider what he said in Matthew 18. If your brother or sister sins against you, go to him, show him his or her fault just between the two of you. So Jesus puts it on both the offender and the offended to make peace. And you see the wisdom of that, don't you? When two people are humble and they're on their way to each other's homes to make peace, that's a fairly good indicator of uh, the harvest of righteousness that's going to sprout and flourish. So conflict should be resolved with as few people as possible just between the two of you. So please keep it off Facebook. Okay? Okay? And, and, you know, if you make it 
a prayer request, just, just make it anonymous, all right? Uh, or if you need advice, keep it anonymous, just between the two of you, all right? And then principle number five, having discerned the Holy Spirit, affirm the decision. So there's discernment and affirmation. Look at verse 28. It seemed best to the Holy Spirit and to us. Now, who's us? Well, verse 22 says, the us are the apostles, the elders, and the entire church. So it's not as if Peter and Paul, you know, brought their apostolic badges their apostolic ace of spades and put it on the table and outranked everybody else's decision. They, they checked their badges at the door and they entered into this curiosity of valuing other stories, something you can't do with a shot clock in the NBA. And there was listening and storytelling and valuing and hearing, and it seemed best to the Holy Spirit. How did the Holy Spirit's discernment manifest itself? Well, while in Acts chapter 2, we could see and hear the Holy Spirit's presence by the sound of roaring wind and tongues of fire, but here, the Holy Spirit's Manifest presence came as spirit-led people listened, shared, valued stories, cited scripture, deliberated, compromised, decided, and communicated. And in those activities, the spirit's presence was highly evident. Celebration, threat, peace, advance. That's why in verse 32, it says that, that Judas and Silas, who had come up to Antioch from Jerusalem, uh, they, they encouraged and they strengthened the brothers with many words. And, and then after a little while, they returned to Jerusalem. But Paul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch and teaching and preaching the word of the Lord. And, and there was just a a beautiful peace that took place. And Christians can remain Christians uh, in conflict by, by committing themselves to the spirit-led discipline of peacemaking. And as I said last week in the country of Nepal, when believers greet each other with Jemasi, Jesus in me greets Jesus in you, that just sets the tone of whatever is to be discussed even if it's a major doctrinal discussion, as this was. Wouldn't it be wonderful if all conflict ended this way? Hmm. But we both know it doesn't. Because after this major doctrinal discussion, verses 36 through 41 detail a personal conflict that occurred. Verse 36 says, After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. So they, they want to go back 
on that missionary tour and check in with these disciples and strengthen them. Barnabas said, great idea, Paul. I'll go get John Mark. Paul said, not so fast. Uh, he quit the first time. You know, I mean, how do you know he won't do it again? And here we kind of get a glimpse of their personalities. Bar Barnabas, to him, the priority was the relationship. And, but to Paul, the priority was the mission. Um, Leslie Flynn is an author who wrote a book called Great Church Fights. And he thinks their conversation went something like this. Paul says, Barnabas, why do you want to take Mark again? I mean, he didn't make it last time. Paul, that was last time. Well, yeah, yeah, all right, it was last time, and I have concern that he's going to bail again. He's a quitter. Paul, remember Jesus? Forgive one another as I have forgiven you. Yes, and let's remember Proverbs 25, 19. Putting confidence in an unreliable person is like chewing with a toothache or walking on a broken foot. Paul, <laughs> give him a chance. He's got potential. He can do the work. Barnabas, is it because John Mark is your cousin that you want to take him along? Oh, that's not fair. <laughs> that, that's not fair. Yes, he is my relative, and I have encouraged so many who aren't relatives like you. All he needs is encouragement and understanding. I get it, Barnabas. I get it, but this mission is too dangerous for the unprepared. Look at my scars from Lystra, man. I mean, do you think the enemies of Christ are going to show mercy just because he looks young and innocent? We should not endanger his life nor the life of the mission. I'm not taking someone who I don't feel is ready. Well, I'm not going without him. Well, then we'll not go together. We'll have to separate. Fine. That's fine. I'll just take him to Cyprus. That's where I grew up. We need, we need to encourage disciples there. Fine. I'll take Silas. And we'll go to Asia Minor. And, um, and they separated. Verse 39. It's a sharp disagreement. Sharp disagreement that caused a separation. Now, now, why would Luke include these verses? I mean, the first part of Acts 15 is encouraging, right? It's encouraging to the Gentiles. Luke was a Gentile. Luke is writing to Theophilus, a Gentile. But I mean, why, why does he have to include this? I think he's just keeping it real. I think he's just trying to be transparent about the inevitability of conflict, even in ministry. Well, should Paul have been more gracious? Well, maybe. And in Acts chapter 16... Paul and Silas were, in fact, tortured in Philippi. How would John Mark have done? Paul did not want to wait to find out. And what did the church do with this disagreement? Well, they didn't take sides. 
See? Because it was between the... They put it on them. You two work this out. You work this out. This is on you. We're not going to get involved. Okay? You work it out. And when a mutually agreed upon solution was reached, the church commended the decision. That's what we see in verse 40. Having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. Wow. Now, reading this applies to us in that, you know, we've got different personalities in our church family, right? And some of us are very committed to the relationship and others of us are very committed to the mission and we must always remember our mission. Our mission is to help people passionately pursue Christ. That's our mission. And it takes relationships to do that. So how we do what we do is just as important as what we do. And to neglect the mission turns us inward. To neglect relationships, well, it can turn people into pawns. And, you know, years later, Paul would write in 2 Timothy 4.11, get Mark and bring him with you. He's telling this to Timothy. He's helpful to me in my ministry. So perhaps Mark changed. But perhaps Paul changed. Maybe he learned that relationships and mission can go together. We want to look at these verses and we want to say, well, who was right? <laughs> and God's word, who knows us, wants to ask us a question, how are you going to handle your next conflict? Peace-breaking? Peace-baking? Well, peacemaking. Peace, peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. Peacemakers act in love as relationship reconcilers as far as it depends on us. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons and daughters of God. Bring peace into the room. Whenever you enter a room, crisis or not, just bring peace with you. And, and when there is peacemaking to occur, take initiative to identify the issue, set up a time and place to make the 300-mile walk, get a mediator if needed, acknowledge God is at work, value one another's stories, Seek the scriptures, throw away your whistle, no pointing, discern the spirit, affirm the decision and communicate. That's the word. In a moment, we're going to take communion. And when we do so, we remember in communion God's initiating grace because God identified the issue, our sin. God set up a time and a place the cross. God got a mediator, his son. God listened as Jesus gave up loud cries and prayers, so says Hebrews 5, 7. And he was heard. He was put to death in the body and made alive by the Spirit. And the decision from on high is that salvation is by grace through faith in the one mediator, Jesus and in his resurrection, God vindicated him. And we're called to advance this good news by inviting others 
to enjoy God's grace. Amen.